video shops, one. There was a shelf left of the till beside the pick and mix for classics. Seven or eight Bergmans, a handful of Truffauts, a Cassavetes, Das Cabinet de Dr. Caligari, three colours blue. On his breaks, he'd microwave a potato in a can of tuna and sit in the downstairs break room that used to be some kind of office back when the shop was a bank and watch 50 minutes of The Last Metro or Wild Strawberries. He walked inquisitive customers through the new releases, guiding them past the tripe. A few nice regulars grew to like his long, generous recommendations, unaware he'd stolen them from Mark Kermode. He wrote into Five Live to share this tidbit with Kermode and Mayo, but his emails were always ignored. Two. The Andalusian lover is sick, so he walks to the video shop just up from the station and opens an account. Any other person who you want can use? The Turkish owner asks him. Saying her name, the giving of rental privileges to her name, with her two family names, father's first, fills him with something a lot like love. Like Christmas lights lighting a dark room. Only his name goes on the back of the membership card, but he knows what it says on their system. He brings her Wall-E and some German thing. They watch Wall-E until she falls asleep, bunged up on a blow-up double mattress, squeezed onto the floor of his single bedroom. It won't last very long, this one, but he isn't to know that. Three. There's a video box on the same road as the pub. The girl there gives walk-around recommendations like he used to. They go there most Sundays, the two of them, after their shifts and free roasts, full of potatoes and gravy and veg. They rent two or three. A serious man, this is 40, funny people. Her flat is three or four minutes away, the basement one street back from the seafront. They huddle on the fallout sofa, her housemate usually out. Sometimes they have sex right there in the lounge, knackered, clothes smelling of ale. She'll usually return the second film later in the week, unwatched and overdue. All the video shops are gone now, every single one. The one where he works became a Sainsbury's local. Once he bought magnets from what had been the classic section. Hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. You've just heard a piece from Chris Nealon, our host here today, and this is Mark Pajak, co-hosting and, and filling in for Helen Mort. That's uh, right. Yes, Helen Mort Light. That's, that's what I am right now. Co-host but. with the most. <laughs> guest host with the mostest. Guest host with the mostest. Thank that's you. That's true. Yes, um, yes you, just, you just heard a piece from me mm, called Video Shops. Which I thought was incredible. So tender, so soft. Oh, thank you. Um, and and based based auto, semi autobiographical is that correct? Hundred percent autobiographical. Oh, really? oh wow! I really did work in a, a choices video video store. Oh, I remember choices. Choices. They were the, they were the best to work for. They had the oh, best that name takes tags. Me back. I know. Right? Yeah. Me too. Yeah, I worked in a choices in uh, on near Hove Seafront in Brighton. Well, in Hove, and. Um, and uh, we had uh, Chris Eubank was a regular customer. Oh, really? Steve Coogan was in every now oh, and wow. then. Terrible fines. Oh, really? Terrible fines. Oh, wow. Account. 
What kind of films did they watch? I remember having a discussion once with Chris Eubank about the Takeshi Kitano version of Zatoichi. <laughs> <laughs> and not many people can say that. <laughs> no. To be no, fair. I don't think so. Oh, God. I think I said something about... about uh, I was just... I was about 23 and I was shy and I was trying to make conversation with this larger-than-life um, boxer character. And I was and I was, I was a Takeshi Kitano fan as well, so I was saying something about... About how, oh yeah, he's definitely got something, hasn't he? He's just, you know, some, he's got some <laughs> quality. He's got, I don't know, he's charismatic or something. I don't know. And Chris Eubank said something sort of cutting, like, uh, like, uh, well, yeah, he just, he just looks at the camera and doesn't say much. <laughs> and and I, I kind of went, oh, okay. And but then he felt bad. He was like, oh, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to be rude or anything like that. He was, oh, a, he was, was a nice man, a gentleman, I a liked gentleman, him. a cutting gentleman. Steve Coogan, on the other hand, God. <laughs> I'd actually no. I actually never. I never met Steve Coogan. Oh right. I, I just heard the stories. Oh right. Well, <laughs> just heard the stories. Steve, if you're out there, we're a big fan of your work. And yeah, <laughs> come in. Come in. Right come and talk to us. Um, the, the 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 piece. What I really uh, enjoyed about it, and I, I think what really fits and, and sets up for this episode is, is the fact that it goes through layers of change. Mm-hmm. And there was a progression and and. Uh, a, a, a sort of feeling of history. You can feel the fading out of, uh, well, first and foremost, of, of video shops mm. and video stores, and and but also of a change in relationships and change of people and mm. places and all this sort of thing. I thought that was fantastic. Was that something you were going for? Well, I think. I mean, when I was writing the piece, I, uh, it was it was. I'm writing an awful lot of sort of autobiographical flash. Mm. Um, I like the idea of picking out small moments uh, in your life that have uh, significance, but they're just small moments. They don't need a narrative or they don't support a narrative, much of a narrative, but yet have a certain kind of kind of significance. Mm. Um, and I felt uh, there was personal significance in those, in those moments that I talked about. And the, and the relationships I had with the with the people in in those moments, um, and there was a lot of personal significance in the places um, that supported those moments. But there's something also about the the fading away of formats, which is, it seems that's what an impersonal, unemotional thing, but it's not. There's something about there's a way of life created by how you connect to culture. I remember. I remember the idea of, of growing up and, and having a CD collection, for example. Uh, I would put certain CDs facing out. I'd put like the Ramones' first album facing out on my CD shelf because <laughs> it, it was a beautiful photograph, mm. but also because it said something about me to put it up there. Um, the go, I had to get on a train to go to Brighton to find a record shop to get the CD that I wanted and then ride the train back to the commuter town that I grew up in. And I would, um, I couldn't listen to the music on the train home, so I would get the CD sleeve out and I'd look at the lyrics or I'd look at the artwork and there'd be little messages hidden inside there. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of emotion invested in, in those objects mm. and in the way that you connect to them. And I, video shops, I found the same thing as a cinephile, as someone who fell in love with cinema. I've had a very emotional connection to, to film. There was, there was an, an emotional quality as odd as it sounds, to going to a place, uh, this shop, that has all this cinema with art on the cover. It's not a title on a, on a website. 
there's artwork there and it's physical artwork that you can pick up and get move closer to your face and you walk around the room and you see which which fonts suggest a serious art house cinema you mm. know and they leap out at you and you pick a couple and you commit to those you take the two home and you've got to watch them because otherwise you have to go back to the video shop and get two more or you have to pay for a fine or something so you can't like flick between a million different things you commit to a couple of choices and then you take them back to your maybe you walk through the rain and the cold and in the, in the second part of the story that i read i remember walking through the rain and the cold down the steep hills that run under the station in brighton down to this the big shared house that i lived in to to this this my sick uh sort of girlfriend housemate slash girlfriend who i was in this very uh turbulent for me emotionally turbulent relationship with is and there any other kind of relationship <laughs> not, not for me no <laughs> but there's there's so it's it's there's so much emotion tied around um the action of going to a video shop and taking mm. videos home. And then I found it cropping up in, in the later relationship that I then wrote about in the third part of the story. So I find them, uh, and then there's something, that it's, there's, it's a small thing, the fact that there are not video shops and that the video shop I worked in became uh, Sainsbury's local. And yet it's a huge thing. A business went bankrupt and closed down and the jobs that were there don't exist anymore. And the shop doesn't exist anymore. And there was a space that held art and now it held, holds cider. Mm. It's, it's at once, um, on one level, it could be seen as insignificant, but I don't think it is. It feels powerful to me. Particularly that your story's in parts and are sort of passing through parts. We, with our two readers today, we, both of their pieces are in parts and there is a moving through, there's a numbering and a moving through that sort of thing. And... Mm. Well, I think it would be be interesting to know who our readers are today. Who have we got on this show? <laughs> who have? Who knows? Mm. Uh, we've got Natalie Burdett on the show today, um, and Natalie is studying for her her PhD right here at MMU, where we record, where we are recording right now. Um, she was selected by Caroline Duffy as a laureate's choice poet for this year, for two thousand and eighteen, and her pamphlet "Urban Drift" was published. Uh, by Smith Doorstop as a Laureate's Choice publication. Mm -hmm. And our second guest, John Fennelly, is also a Laureate's Choice poet. He was a house poet here at the Manchester Writing School. And his pamphlet, Another Hunger, was also published by Smith Doorstop as a Laureate's Choice. And his work has been commended in the Bridport and Bear Fiction Prizes. Mm. So we've got a couple of poets on the show today. I think the great thing is, even though that they're, they're both Laureate's Choice, they've both come from uh, the, the writing school here, but so different. And you, you get that, even though they're, they're, they talk, there's a, there's a theme running through the show. I just wanted to, even like me and you and Nat and John, there's such a variety here. It's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic to get us all together like this. It, it is it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it's it nice. nice. Oh, it's lovely. It's, it's lovely, absolutely isn't it? lovely. Well, we've come into the voices section of the show. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Okay, it's downward spiral. I'm a Scottish man. I'm a threatening Scottish man. I'd love to do that. Oh, there's something... I can't stop doing it now, started. There's, there's something... Ah, so off-putting and yet slightly attractive about that voice. I don't know. I I know. <laughs> it's the heart of Glasgow. Oh. No, I'm going to stop it. You're making me all flustered. Anyway, <laughs> enough, enough. But there, no, you're right. There is this, as, as disparate as the different pieces are, there's this sense of looking back mm. that runs through all of them. Yes, certainly. Um, and 
I think that manifests in very different ways, especially in the piece that we're going to hear from Nat. Mm. Listen for yourself and, and see what you think, and we'll we'll uh, we'll pick it up at the end and talk about it. Like, uh, but here here is Natalie Burdett reading her piece. Baggage. One. After heavy rain, water is trapped near the surface by a layer of clay, red as a Staffordshire bull terrier. Collects in puddles of orange aid, then overflows them, streaming across fields. Cuts down through history, leaving tide marks of black dust on paths first cleared for coal trucks, for open pits and deep mines with seams that men could stand in. Paths between Bagpool, white wood and the burning field have been relayed with slag to open up the territory for walkers, foragers, birders. Wash away leaf litter to show young soil, then red gravel and white grit, then sand, and under that, knuckles of hardcore, half buried in the clay that sticks us to our bedrock. Two. 300 million years ago, amphibians crawled out of swamps. Giant trees staked their claim, loaded with lignin, slow to rot, accumulated where they fell to form the peat that gave itself for coal. Molten magma from deep volcanoes charged through gaps in rocks hardened to basalt, tough as Dudley miners. Eroded into soil and clay, maintained a vigorous spirit, yearning to find a way back into fire. Lord Dudley gave away his granddaughter's hand and bought back land with coal and limestone. 3,000 men were employed to get at it send it all up to Round Oak Steelworks. A line of Viscounts, Earls and Lords sold the clay for high-quality bricks, cut new canals, created the Black Country, left spoil heaps, foggy ponds, budged earth, red water. I noticed that with that with that piece, of course, it's it's the the black country and mm. and and black as a colour. You always get that idea of things being covered up, but the poem begins and ends with red water mm. and there's white grit mm. and colours streams throughout mm. foggy ponds and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. Uh, is that something that you pick up on? Being from the black country and being there and your experience of it is it in, you, you find it an incredibly colourful place. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's a lot more green than people would expect, I think. And obviously the name comes from, you know, times when there was so much smoke and pollution that, you know, the world was black. And they used to say, you know, black by day and red by night because of all the industrial fires that were burning. And, um, you know, this story that Queen Victoria came through and told the uh, driver to shut the curtains in her carriage. She just didn't want to see this landscape. So I'm always really conscious that there is beauty there, even in these like damaged places. And the way that we're kind of 
seeing a return to a more colourful, um, a more positive landscape feels quite important to show. Um, and you, you can't miss that when you're in places like Bagwich, I don't mm. think. And is that, 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 is that where the, the genesis of the poem came from? Was that that want to show? Well, um, maybe unconsciously, but I didn't set out to write a poem that said, look, the black country is really beautiful. But I was, you know, walking in Bagawidge and, and seeing this, this landscape and feeling that, you know, there's something that needs to be explored here because, you know, it's, you know, it's a nature reserve now and it's seen as something that's, you know, really valued locally. And so I just wanted to explore this, this change over time, I think. Mm. And, you know, the story of how it is returning to, you know, a, a beautiful and, and positive resource, even though it's been exploited so much in the past. And what a, what a span of time you cover as well. <laughs> yeah, it's an extreme, really, extreme story, really. The, uh, the you know, the, the uh, geological history of the black country is so important to the fact that it was exploited and, you know, was at the heart of the Industrial Revolution because coal and limestone, you know, were in the same place with iron ore, which meant that, oh, this is something we can really, we can really use, we can really motor with this um this landscape and um so yeah i felt like you know i had to go back to that because if it wasn't for that 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 period of uh great geological change um the black country wouldn't have been interesting to the people who were interested in the resources i guess you could mm, say yeah, yeah. I, there's a lot of things that that's so neatly bookend this poem so you've got the red water at the mm. start and the red water at the end and then you've also got the, the, the book ending of history, you see, the earliest point mm. in the history of this poem is, is that three million years ago. <laughs> and we're starting with, with beautiful, great trees and life crawling out of, of water. And you're ending in this nature reserve, which is again a, a sort of return. Was that, were you conscious of, of capturing both ends of things throughout? Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I didn't want to tell it in a strictly chronological way because... I was interested in, you know, how we experience it today um, and, you know, the change that it's gone through over time. But um, in the final part of the sequence, I'm talking about um, a lot of the wildlife that, you know, makes its home there and how the landscape's thriving now. Um, so, yeah, I definitely wanted to tell that story of change over time. But there's... Uh, it's not three three million years ago, it's 300 million years yeah. ago. What a wonderful hook <laughs> to put in the centre of a poem. Because you've got this all this vivid description all the way through and then halfway through you go, two, 300 million <laughs> years ago. And it's just, it's, it's an incredible way to, to go through it. And it, do you do that? Do you play with time and chronologi chronology in, in your other poems? Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I am interested in, in time quite a lot and probably mix up my tenses more than I should do but um it's something that I've always wanted to explore how you know how place changes over time and how our memories and how our reflections of of a place are you know affected by so many factors just the complexity of landscapes I think is something that um I'm interested in the I, what I particularly like about the the, the narrative choice of the, of the poem is it follows that uh, the water flowing through start, that's that start image of uh, it's very it's a very Oswald image you know the 
the the, the short story of, of water, you know, that poem, and also Don Patterson, mm. rain, you know, you've got mm. that, everything flows through that w- fatal water course. Are these, I mean, w- who, which poets are st- stood behind it? Who, who do you read and inform your poetry, your work? Thank you. Um, that, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess uh, locally, Roy Fisher is someone that I think is um, very good at this idea of geological time and the, the big stories over time. Um, and I think that's something that's really interesting in the black country because we do tend to look back so much, I think, rather than necessarily looking forward. Um, and obviously Liz Berry is someone who talked about the black country landscaping in a way that, you know, showed the beauty. And I feel like that is important and that did make a difference to uh, the black country, I think. You know, we kind of warmed to her work because it is so um, beautiful and tender in the way she looks at the, at the landscape. Um, but, yeah, writers who... Um, care about place are are really important to me and I think that um, idea of looking closely and you know reflecting on the importance of place in all our lives Um, I mean a lot of my work is more urban than this so I guess this is one of my greener poems Mm. in that sense but um, yeah poets who who write about the world around them um, are important to me Mm. The 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 uh, the pamphlet is is actually called Urban Drift. Yes, and uh, I know that you you separate most of your time. You're you're, you're half in Birmingham, half in uh, Manchester, and also there's a that feeling of movement throughout the poem. So you've got urban drift, and you spend a lot of time travelling between two places, uh, and there's a progression through the poem as well. So is is movement between places, whether historical places or or between actual places. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, well, urban drifts, you know, a a term that I learned from geography around how people are drawn to the city from rural areas. And, you know, that's definitely what happened in in the black country at the Industrial Revolution. Um, But also this idea of drifting around, uh, wandering around the, the city or a landscape. And I think, yeah, movement is important to me. Um, and it feels as if that, is important for my writing to be out there, seeing things, watching what's happening and exploring what's going on. So, yeah, definitely, um, I hope there's there's movement in, in my work. That was Mark talking with Natalie Burdett, and now we're going to hear from our second guest today, John Fennelly. My father's glass eye. One. After seven operations failed to reignite the real one, He came home with three, two of polymethyl resins, lifelike silk veins and iris, indecisive blue or green. His spare would stare from the mantelpiece so he'd always catch it or let it drop, his eye of providence. Or later, down the Irish club, He'd place his Sunday best next to his stout. I'm keeping my eye on you. Two. Lost, navying the Jubilee line, impaled on some thorn of steel to a fascinating 
absence. Glimpsed satin behind a smooth curtain of skin whenever he'd slight it out or in. Relishing this, especially on buses, his motorbike sold, index finger inserted, he then pop it in his mouth, suck briefly its lozenge, give it a wipe, then deftly lift the tear-thirsty flap and pop it back. At night, drink taken, he'd often forget to take it out and be found in the living room a snoring barrel of black, iris enfolded back to read his dreams, its white disc staring like the moon. Three. My lips on his cold forehead, both eyes finally closed, undertaker's lies. Four. I picture the green glass eye is soon still to balance on its cornea fulcrum in the bowl of the skull, the pupil fixed to scan the fathomless dark. Above, the emigre trains flash past. So, in in all of the pieces in the show today, uh, except Mark's, which I haven't heard yet, I have no idea what he's <laughs> what he's going to read. Right, right. Uh, all of the pieces today, so far, uh, have an interesting relationship with history. I think, and they all have a sense of looking back at something, right? And the ways in which we look back at things. And I think your piece has that too. There's mm. a clear sense of looking back at something presented as personal. How personal is the piece that you wrote? Well, uh, you're very personal. Um, Historicised, I mean, in the sense of shaped and worked into uh, a poem. Um, But based on childhood memories. uh, And it's a, in in a way, it's a poem about stories I told myself. I mean, you know, we construct the past or our memories are constructed by how we we tell them to ourselves and to, to other people. So it's interesting you've picked on that, actually, because the very last line of the poem, which some people have found a bit strange, like and emigre trains flash past, it is, it's a story about immigration, coming to this country to find work. Mm. So, and, and, and the result and the consequences of that for... Family history and an injury, but not, but in, not in, just injury in um, a physical sense. What what drove you to write that piece? Do you think? Hmm. Um, a sense of a, a kind of catharsis, a kind of getting rid of uh, various memories. Uh, the memory of 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 going to, for example, with my sister to. It was a very. It was a shock to me that when my father died um he'd been ill the year before and when i had gone i was living in the czech republic at the time and when i'd gone over uh to, to i found him sitting up in bed you know chatting and laughing with the nurses and then suddenly a year later 
again, he'd say he'd, this time he wasn't so lucky with a, a heart attack being taken into hospital. Um, and so, I, I mean, and it just came from this idea. I, I was, <laughs> I, I'd never touched my father's hair for, I hadn't touched my father's hair since I was a child, I suppose. And I hadn't, hadn't kissed him since I was perhaps a child as well. And, uh, the idea of, uh, of of being intimate now that I hadn't hadn't seen him for since the previous Christmas uh, for for about nine months, um, a sudden intimacy, and then the realization that he'd never because he'd had a he did actually have a glass eye he wasn't able to close it it wasn't uh, so it, it, it the, the the eyelid and the uh, the eyelid kept the, the the glass eye steady in his eye and it, he could never blink or close it. Uh, he had to take it out to clean it and so on. Um, you realise that he was wearing his glass eye, and um, I just—it—it's it, it, an image that's haunted. And and that the, they had closed the eyelid over the glass eye, and the idea that that would that flesh would rot, that it would eventually fall into the back of the skull, that the weight of it would mean that it would land on the cornea. It, it kind of haunted me and. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's where it came from. Yeah, understandably, that's a haunting, <laughs> it's a haunting concept and a haunting image. Mm. How was your relationship with your dad? Uh, very difficult. Um, yeah, extremely difficult. Um, I was incredibly proud of him in certain ways. Um, proud of his strength and his, his determination, his, his work ethic and so on and, uh, but he had a an awful temper, and uh, and uh, later in life, it, it, things weren't uh, <laughs> as easy as they could have been. Um, he he had this very kind of masculine idea about how boys should be brought up, and uh, you know, when I joined the National Youth Theatre, he immediately assumed that I was homosexual. <laughs> There's no question about it. He, he, any interested in the arts or theatre. But he was incredibly proud of me because I, I did so well at school, but we never, we didn't talk. I mean, we just didn't talk for years. And the last time I saw him at Christmas, he asked me out for a beer and I, I had other plans and I didn't go with him and I wish I had, you know, and that those kind of things haunt me now. But no, I there was a kind of, yeah... I was told stories about him. He was extremely funny. He, I mean, breathtaking and, and accident prone and and had a, f a wicked, uh, fantastical sense of humour uh, as well, which I think I've inherited in some ways. So, yeah. <laughs> what part of Ireland was he from? He was from Port Leash, Abbey Leaks in the Midlands. Um, I, I haven't been back there since... Um, I was a child. Uh, I, I mean, I've been back to Ireland many times, but not to my father's home. What county um, is that in? Uh, um, Leash, Leash is a... Oh, can, okay. oh Leash. Yeah, I mean, it used to be known as Queen's County, I believe, yeah. uh, 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 under the uh, the rule of our British masters, yeah. I believe. It's, uh, so yeah. do, you, do you know much about his story? Not from him, interestingly. Bits I've picked up from my mum, bits I've picked up from aunts. His wake was a great storytelling fest of you know reminiscences and uh you realize how things get distorted i mean for example i only found out recently from my mother that although 
this was an industrial accident that he had had on the Jubilee line while he was working. I believe it was the Jubilee line he was building at that time, 1977 or well, before the Queen's Jubilee then. Um, he, um, he'd had an accident uh, cutting back thorn bushes in Ireland when he was a teenager and had um, a, a, a serious accident on the farm um, when a, 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 a thorn got stuck in his eye and had to be. So he'd always had a weak, weak eye, a black, black thorn. It doesn't sound very pleasant, but hence that the, a thorn of steel. Later on it was a, but the, so the eye was already weakened and then the, the accident maybe took it even further. So. Do, you, do you think that, I think it's quite common, especially <laughs> with uh, Irish men <laughs> uh, of that period, yeah, to yeah. be closed books. Yes. And to, and to not necessarily share the fullness of their story with their family. Have you had to make sense of him, do you think? Is that a part of writing about him? Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, that's a fascinating idea, actually, um, how we put together scraps of history. And the difficulties and things that happen in personal life are just as hard to share with your progeny <laughs> um, as, as the political and the um, economic uh, situation of, of a country that you grow up in. And... Uh, um, and it's an immigrant's experience that um, you always have a sense of what you've left behind. We always called ourselves London Irish or Irish, um, although my accent and my education and so on would, would uh, um, defy that. That um, What he... Hmm. <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> Uh, I think I was asking uh, if if you had to uh, if you had to make sense <coughs> right, yeah, of yeah. who he was and how he became the way he was and how that relates to you and if writing mm -hmm. about him was a part of that. Yeah, I think I think writing is always about making sense. It, I mean, I know my brothers have done it in different ways, and my sister my sister has a completely different image of what my father was like. I mean, um, as maybe she would immediately say that she was a daddy's girl. I definitely wasn't. I was a mummy's boy, I guess. I mean, the, that whole... Um, and all my brothers have reacted... Uh, my brothers have reacted to, to him in different ways as well. Um, and that upbringing, uh, which was a, a tough working-class Irish... Uh, London Irish um, upbringing, you know. Um, with all the poverty and misery that... I don't want to get all Angela's ashes on the... <laughs> But uh, it was tough, you know, things were hard and it was hard to make your way in that, that world, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes think that I, I write an awful lot of um, autobiographical stuff. I'm writing an yeah. awful lot of that stuff yeah. at the moment, yeah. a lot of which I never intend to publish. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I'll, pro I'll probably put some in, in, into, into something, yeah. but um, a lot of it, I write it and then I go, okay, no, no one needs to see that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. I, I, I do... Uh, I feel sometimes that there's there's a sense of when you you look back and you try to make sense of things and then you put it mm. on paper. There's a sense that you solidify certain things, right? Certain aspects, and maybe they grow. Maybe certain things become 
true and hard because you've remembered them again mm. and again and mm. you've redrafted a piece again and again. Mm. And so you have these touchstones of this person mm. or this relationship that are hard and clear mm. and sometimes wonder uh, if that changes, if we, if we almost um, semi-consciously change the person that we're relating to in our heads or decide that certain things are truer than other things. What do you think? Wow. Yes. I, I, I mean, to know another person in an intimate relationship, to know yourself. I mean, we are all fluid. We, we you know, we don't, we don't exist as sort of, um, objectified, uh, made beings. We're always fragmented. We're always sort of, um, you know, indecisive, in two minds, indecisive. And, um, um, I, you know, my father is dead and, but he existed and he existed in a variety of ways, some of which I probably never even saw, you know. Or that I, I, but I think we do that about ourselves as well. We we are made up. We are stories. We are storied um, to, to the very heart of ourselves. And that's not a bad thing because it is, that's our existence. We... We have our stream of consciousness about ourselves in our heads and we have our conversation, our dialogue with the other other people and the world. Um, and if we if we sort if we're sort of sort of saying, do we distort it? Yes, of course we do. But it can be to create art, to create something beautiful. How do you make sense? Of your own Irishness, Ooh. because I have that too. <laughs> right. uh, an Irish mum and a half Irish dad. Yeah, I, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't make it. I can't make sense of it. Um, it's. I. I mean, that's probably why I. I, I choose the adjective London Irish uh, um, um, to, to to go before it, but. Um, because the Ireland that my father always said he wanted to go home in a box, they'll take me, they'll take me home in a box, um, which he never uh, achieved, um, doesn't exist anymore. That Ireland of the 1950s, that, that uh, you know, that Joycean priest-ridden land, that, that kind of, sp the, the guilt and, um, and even the violence, um, the, 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 the misogyny and the homophobia and the, um, I mean, okay, it may exist in, in like it, those things do in all societies, but the, the, the Irish, I, what it means to be Irish has changed so radically. And I, I'm incredibly proud of that, but I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider of that. Although I am applying for my Irish passport. I oh, just, well, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Course, I've, just got my, I've just got my a copy of my birth certificate through and I phoned my mother last week to see if I could get a hold of her marriage certificate so I can... Uh, yeah, my Irishness <laughs> shot through the roof about two years ago. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why that happened. We're, we're, we're called passport paddies, apparently. I'm fine with that as long as I get the passport. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sure the Irish are as well. It's like, you know, the, the population of Ireland might go back to its... Uh, pre-famine uh, levels at this, at this rate. <laughs> the upside of Brexit. <laughs> Correcting the wrongs never, of the famine. Never mind the border. I mean, you know. Bringing and, back the diaspora. Yeah, well, the, 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 the diaspora at the border, um, 
you know, this could be in the long term a step towards a, a united island. It's kind of withering away of, which is, you know, that, that nationalist dream that I was brought up with, um, which I, you know, I'm so proud of things like the Good Friday Agreement as well, you know, and the, uh, but <laughs> pride from a distance, which are not, I mean, some of us, you know, you, you actually meet people from Ireland and they're very, very critical of it uh, in ways that I'm, I'm not so much. Well, on our, on that Irish pride, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, I didn't let's, mean it. To our London way. Irish pride. Let's end that. Let's Maybe end that it's segment. because I'm a Londoner. I've got Brighton Irish pride. So <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Pleasure, on, absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank Me you. Too. We've been talking about looking back throughout yeah. this throughout this show. What have we learned? <laughs> what have we learned during oh, this show? What a piece to end on as well with with um, with John. Uh, actually, the the image of looking back at a glass eye and mm. and everything held in that glass bubble. I, I think that we've learned so much uh, beyond speech, Chris. <laughs> beyond speech, uh, you have to try. I have. Yes, yes, I do. I do. Well, like I think. Um, I, what I loved particularly, particularly in 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 Nat's piece, is the the fact, the sense that a, a story, uh, and I think it's true of your piece, and we started with as well, that there doesn't have to be uh, a traditional story. There doesn't have to be an inciting incident. Mm. There doesn't have to be a sense of chaos, a sense of climax. It can just be telling a story of a place, of a landscape, of an object, and true. and incredible what you can memories and history and all sorts of things you can untangle just from these these parts these numbered images and moments that's very true i think it's it's very interesting to when you when you reduce story um whether whether that comes through um poetry or prose when you reduce story to such a condensed form two minutes what elements does does a piece have to have to feel complete to feel like a like a standalone completed thought with some kind of resolution some kind of resolution of something even if it's just a resolution of thought rather than of plot say um i think i think that's key to 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 creating something that feels complete in a really reduced condensed form mm. um a sense of of harmony of structure maybe mm. or that an idea has been explored up to a finishing point um, uh, uh, explored up to a, almost a jumping off point because I don't mm. think we well, speaking to both writers today there was not much resolution in both of them mm. John, John uh, I feel that there's a wealth of family history and national identity and all sorts of things playing in the poem that he's mm. going to continue to move into mm. and again with, with Natalie there, there's an idea of the, the landscape 
has never set. There has never been a resolution. And even the idea that the image of water washing through, it's washing, it's moving, there's urban drift, there's movement. Things aren't ever resolved in these poems. I know exactly what you mean. It comes to a, a sense of completeness mm. as, as a piece of art. But the themes themselves, they're continuing. We have so much promise from these writers as well mm. really excited about what they're going to produce next what well, what do you what do you look for 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 the end of a piece uh money usually <laughs> yeah. uh, how's that working <laughs> not too well <laughs> uh, uh for, for the end of a piece there has to be oh god there but there, there are there are as many endings as there are stories mm. there are as many endings you, you have to feel a slowing down and a coming to a, a you know, I, I kind of get a feeling of, yes. Somebody will say something, I'll go, and the, it was my response was to go, yes. Mm. I, I feel a, a, a close. A sense it? of completeness. Yeah. So, something's been closed, yeah. Or, or, something that had been opened has been closed. Yeah. Um, the the end of John's poem, the, the migrant trains mm. um, flash by... Uh, there's a John Burnside poem called um, Night Shift at the Plug Mill which is incredible and it ends on trains as well and there's that idea of uh, as it all comes his his ending is it all comes to nothing and there's that idea of of just passing you on to again it comes to it it, it concludes on a jumping off point You, you feel a sense of potential uh, and climax and potential so you're not just finished you go away fe- feeling energised and excited you know do you think that you learn about yourself by writing is that a part of the process hmm I hope so I think of the, the my experience of, of being a writer I've I've learnt yes I'm going to say yes mm. and particularly recently I, I've been very worried throughout my entire, and I think this is not typical to me, I think it's all writers, once you, you start writing and you start to make sense of it, you immediately worry, I'm going to lose this, I'm going to lose this wonderful thing that I've, I've, mm. I've built a relationship, it's going to go away, I'm not, the, the ideas for stories are going to go away and all this sort of thing. And very recently, somebody asked me the question, what would you do if you couldn't? And I was like, no, there is no couldn't. I would find a way. And I was like, well, your problem is you could never not, right? Mm. This is always going to be you. And that realization, I learned so much about myself. Writing teaches about you who you are, if it is who you are. I am am utterly a writer. And I know that everybody who's been on this show uh, and these two-minute stories you, you you cut them open and they bleed ink, you know, and to be incredibly pretentious. <laughs> yeah. But that's the way I am. So that's the way that's the way it comes out. Well, um, you can't help it. You're a writer. Well, yeah, I'm not just a writer. I'm a poet. For God's <laughs> sake, there's no hope. Um, but it's it's that. It's, Embrace your pretentiousness. Uh, I, I think as soon as, as soon as you stick to writing long enough, and and yeah, you do. You learn so much about yourself. It becomes so intrinsic to who you are. Well, how about we hear some of your writing then to close off the show? If we, if we must. I think we must. <laughs> I think it's time. What, what are you going to read for us today? Uh, I'm going to read a poem about uh, my closest and my oldest friend, Joe. 
uh, and I, I, I hope it fits with what we talked about because it is about a looking back and about um, uh, a moving through a life and a friendship. Okay, and here's Mark to close the show. After closing time, for Joe, we head to the edge of town, to the Black River and Old Stone Bridge. Two boys full of vodka, tipping side to side like flames. And for a laugh, we climb the railing and hang from our arms. Below in the deep, two boys peer up at us over their feet. Like drops of water, we are gathering ourselves to fall. One of us says, you go first. And we echo this back and forth. We are here for a very long time. Years, in fact. I marry, divorce. You skip all that, become a father. We see less and less of each other. Now we are what the world considers men, which is to say, We've learned that falling is inevitable. Yet here we are still, side by side, two boys way past closing time, holding on until the other lets go. Mm.